Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Fuji Love Podcast. This is the show brought to you by Fuji Love Magazine for the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm X Series and GFX cameras. Head on over to FujiLove.com. And right now, we are still in the middle of the COVID 19 pandemic. Uh, at the time of this recording, uh, we here at FujiLove are just wishing everybody out there to stay safe and wishing everybody stay healthy. And <laughs> uh, it, it is, it, it's been crazy here in the States and uh, a lot of my colleagues abroad. It, it has been very, very fun. Uh, I mean, fun in, in the sarcastic tone. Uh, it, it has been crazy. And, especially with creatives out there it, it's it, it's rough on everybody's career right now and creativity but we wish you the best and hopefully the articles you can find in Fuji Love magazine the photos in there can be inspiring the articles articles in there can be helpful and you know help you out in any way that you, you know any way that it can uh, head on over to fujilove.com and check it out. My guest this week is a personal favorite of mine. He is a photographer that I have been watching for a few years now. And I, I'm, I'm really excited to, I was really excited to talk to him. And you could tell by the befuddlement in my questions when I ask him. Um, he is Ben Horn. He is a tremendous photographer and he literally puts the film in Fujifilm. He is a large format film photographer and his primary film stock is usually Velvia and Provia. So getting to talk to him is pretty big deal. Uh, I, I, in my opinion, because he is one of the nicest guys to chat with. He's also very mellow, very uh, he's a very excellent storyteller. His photo visuals are absolutely stunning, but his video quality is just as amazing and and when I look at these uh, videos, which you can find on YouTube, by doing a quick search for Ben Horn and also check out Ben Horn's website, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about because his video visuals are very carefully produced and his photos are, are just the, the exclamation point. It is, it is absolutely great. So it was quite the honor to, to chat with him. So without further ado, Let's get into that interview. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, I got to say, it's uh, I'm super excited to, to interview, uh, interview you. You are probably my top three favorite photographers on YouTube. You are there up there with uh, Thomas Heaton and uh, Gavin Harcastle. Gavin for the laughs, and he's also a great photographer. <laughs> Thomas and you, I kind of discovered at the same time. And it, it's funny. Both of you are, I mean, tremendous landscape photographers. But with you in particular, I, I got to say, there is a certain Zen quality to your videos. And you are probably, I'm going to throw this out. I mean it as a flattery. Uh, you, you're like the Bob Ross of photography. <laughs> I've I've heard that before. You're you're not the first person to say that, and I, I definitely do uh, definitely do take that as a compliment because uh, I I know exactly what you're talking about as far as the you know just the sort of way like you said kind of the Zen like thing and, and and I think a lot of that's really enforced by the camera I'm using and kind of the limitations and all that. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's it's definitely I'm trying to portray the experience of of being there, and it usually is a pretty pretty calm experience like that out in the field. It, it's 
Exactly. It it is. Uh, and, and the the funny thing is that when you, I, I don't even need to see the end product of, of your photos. And I understand that sometimes there isn't because of the nature of the kind of photography that you're doing and the locations and, and so forth. But your videography is just, it's, I would attribute it to as a, a moving photograph because your compositions in the video itself is really impressive. Thanks. And so it, you're basically living a photograph or, or I'm watching a photograph in movement, watching you take a photograph and then seeing the end result of that photograph so it's like photography inception in, in a way and that's that's one of the things that i i do love about the process of doing the videos because there's a lot of things that will look great in a photo um but there's some things that just a photo doesn't do it justice but video will make it look really nice so if i'm just hiking through somewhere and i see some really beautiful scene and you know it'll it'll, it'll grab my attention i'll stare at it and sometimes i'll be i just i can't find a composition for a photo but yeah. you know, as far as you know, setting up a video clip or something like that, it definitely is very, very well suited for that. So if I see something that looks great, it's either going to be a photo or it's going to be in the video or maybe both. Uh, yep. But it's it's and also the um the video camera I use uh, most of the time when I'm not on the backpacking trips when it's more closer to my truck, uh, it's a A7S II with a 21 millimeter fixed lens. So it's basically one lens I use for everything. And I think it gives yeah. a certain degree of consistency too, as well, because everything shot at 21 millimeters. So it gives that kind of that wide angle sort of view, which is, which is kind of nice. It's kind of like the Lawrence of Arabia of uh, YouTube there. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I could see that. I hadn't thought about that, but uh, yeah, I could see that, you know, it's that, that consistency across the board with the single focal length. And I, I could, I could watch you make a sandwich with that. I mean, <laughs> your videos are just that interesting and that relaxing, I, I I find it very very useful after a stressful day. So, like if I'm photographing a, a wedding that you know lasted a long time, and it was just it was just a very active night, helping me come down from that you know that intense activity is your videos. <laughs> I will cool. that on loop. And uh, so, yeah, and uh, again, uh, for, for the audience listening, uh, check out Ben Horn's website. An easy search on the web will uh, will help you find it. I think it's benhornphotography.com. Just benhorn.com. I got it like a long ben time ago, back when you can still get your own name. Oh, my God. Those were the days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, on Instagram as well uh, to kind of uh, go along with the, with the audio of the show. Uh, having a great visual to to watch it, and of course, check out Ben Horn on YouTube uh, w- when uh, you get a chance because those are incredible. Um, so, I'm bringing you onto the show because you literally put the film in Fujifilm. Yeah, uh, it was. Um, it, it didn't dawn on me in, uh, until after a few episodes. I'm like, hang on. That's a, that's a lot of uh, Velvia you're using. That's oh, yeah. a lot of Velvia, Provia. Those those are my two two main film stocks I use, and definitely both uh, both of the Fuji origins. Yeah, uh, usually one of the fun questions I ask people is what film simulation you use. You are literally using the film. So. Yeah, you, using uh, the 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 original the original stuff. Yeah. So what a, have you used the digital? Uh, versions uh, of those said films. I'm, I, I'm just curious. I, I haven't, but I will say that even though Fuji says that you know these are the the simulations of those films, I, I don't know that it's necessarily super accurate in that sense because film has a different way of seeing color. It's not just a contrast and saturation thing, but colors are re- are rendered differently in the you know bright areas dark areas are rendered a little bit differently with film as well um yeah so i i, I use a lot of as far as the actual film i've been preferring provia these days because it's, it's a pretty good solid all-around film um and it, it's uh it, it does it has a better dynamic range than velvia uh, it has a little, little less contrast kind of a, a mild film but 
handles well for long exposures, but film has a way of going very cool in, um, in, like in the shade and in yeah. a way that digital isn't quite the same way. So, um, it has a very unique color palette, but yeah, if, if I was doing the, you know, the film simulations and stuff, eh, I don't know. I haven't played with those too much. Um, I don't, I don't currently have any Fuji digital cameras that have that, but I've played with some of the cameras in the past that have had that, and, you know, had to switch to the Velvia setting to see what that looked like and all that. But I think the film itself is, is going to be a little, little bit of a different experience. Yeah. I mean, they're d- different natures entirely. And, yeah. um, experience isn't going to be one-to-one because I mean the digital sensor versus actual film and chemicals. Um, so I get that it's, it's not one-to-one, but maybe one to 1.5 or so forth. (laughs) We'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, but let's rewind the clock a bit and get into how you got into photography to begin with. Uh, what was your first experience with photography? Um, I would say, I mean, the first experience would be as a kid going on, uh, like camping trips with the family. Um, I mean, I remember one back in, it was, uh, 1987. Uh, we had a, a family wedding up in Montana and, and my family lives down in San Diego. So it's going from, you know, the southernmost point of really of, you know, California all the way up to Montana. So a long, long road trip hit up a bunch yeah. of national parks along the way and little, you know, little point and shoot camera. I was like six years old, seven years old. So, I mean, I was, I was uh, just a kid and obviously didn't really know what I was doing other than, you know, pushing a button and spending my parents' money. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you have the Kodak, but like, what is it? The 110 camera? It, yeah. Yeah. It was, um, I think it was a 110 camera. Um, and then also later on there was a, a 35 millimeter camera, but that was, that was a little bit later on, but again, just, you know, point and shoot sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but then actually got into it a little bit more when I was in high school, uh, you know, took a film photography class, kind of, you know, got a little excited about it and that's when digital first started coming out. So I had bought myself a, a $700, uh, 0.3 megapixel camera that used floppy disks. So <laughs> yeah. oh, man. it was a Sony, uh, things have changed a lot since then. Uh, yeah. Their memory cards got a little bit better. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and just kind of rode that wave of digital cameras as it got better. And pretty, pretty soon they were interchangeable lens cameras when I was in college, like a Canon D30, which was a three megapixel. And it, it was kind of, you know, interested in it. I was interested in landscape photography, but, you know, when you're in college, you don't really have a great ability to travel around to areas that have great landscapes. So I'd shoot some stuff along the coast here in San Diego. And it was fun. It was kind of a proving ground to kind of learn sort of the ins and outs of composition and exposure and all that. Um, but I didn't really get into actually making the leap to large format film until 2008. Um, by then I had like a really good digital camera, like really fancy Canon SLR, um, way too expensive of a camera. And, uh, and I, I just wasn't really satisfied with my work. And then a friend of mine said, Hey, why don't you just get a four by five camera? You're shooting landscapes. You're going to these areas in like Utah and Arizona and stuff. Why don't you just use a tool that people have used for the longest time. So bought myself a used four by five large format camera and brought it on a trip, tried it along with my digital setup. And I just love the simplicity of, uh, of working with that large format camera. And I've been doing that ever since now. So it's, it's been, a uh, it's been a little while, but I've, I've how were really your first it. exposures? What was that? How were your first exposures? Uh, when you got the, uh, brand new four by five camera? Not good. Um, that, that's, that's what you learn early on. Cause I mean, I, I'd, I've been working with the digital camera, so I thought I knew a lot about photography, you know, yeah. and then you jump into this whole other realm and I had a light meter, you know, I had, a, I went to the beach and tried to, you know, set up a, a, a scene and take a photo of it. And the moment I pull up my light meter, I realized I have no clue how to use a light meter. Cause mm-hmm. you know, when I use it with my digital camera, I was using it when I was working with some studio strobes and stuff. And, you know, you don't have to like, you know, fully trust a light meter. You just kind of hit the button, look at it, dial it in the digital camera, take a picture. And if it's not right, you adjust it. But yeah. Yeah. When you, when you load a sheet of Velvia in there and you're sitting there and like, how do I actually know what I'm doing here? You know? So uh, first pictures were like way bright or way dark or just, you know, weren't all that great, but 
that was that was one of the learning curves how to how to meter light how to use a light meter learning each different type of film um, so that's actually what most of the learning curve is when when working with a film camera the cameras themselves are actually pretty simple and, and pretty easy to use now how what is the using the camera itself like as far as like lens goes i know when when i uh play around with the the fuji aps-c sensors and then i played with the um the medium format there was kind of that 35 millimeter equivalent difference yeah. uh, with APS-C it's one point i think with fuji it's 1.5 uh, multiplier uh, with uh, medium format, it is a, a divider. Like, yeah. what is that transition? Like, how how does that mentality of uh, lenses for large format cameras compared to uh, like your typical thirty five millimeter kind of? Yeah. So the easiest way to to think about it, my my normal lens on my eight by ten camera is about a three hundred millimeter. Um, that's actually equivalent to more like a, like a 40 something millimeter on a full frame. Um, yeah. But a, a 300 millimeter is kind of my sl- slightly wider than normal lens. My longest is a 600 millimeter, which I think is a, like a 60 millimeter or something like that equivalent. Uh, maybe a little, little longer than that. And then my widest is a 150, which is I think like a 20 millimeter equivalent. So it, it's roughly divided by somewhere between like six and seven or something like that. Um, to get back to a 35 millimeter numbers. Yeah. Do you even think of that? Uh, or, or is that, are you just strictly thinking in terms of large format numbers? Yeah. You just, you just kind of think of the large format numbers. And, and actually one of the things that's really interesting about the experience of using large format is that you don't, you know, with like, whether it's, you know, a Fuji APS-C camera or Sony or whatever it is, you know, you can pick up that camera and just look through it and you look through your lens and you find your composition. It's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. With a large format camera, you really can't do that because it's so bulky. Um, it's so slow to set up that if every time you saw something that might be pretty good, you pulled out that camera and you tried to find a composition, you're not going to make it very far. So what you actually do is you learn to find a composition with your eyes. And after a while, yeah. you really get to learn your lenses. And you'll just look at a scene and know exactly what a 300 millimeter lens will see or a 240 or a 600. And it's actually really beneficial because you can find that composition you know even before you take your backpack off and pull the camera out Um, so that's one of the things that that large format has really taught me just to see that composition with your eyes even without a camera it really really helps out when scouting scenes and all that right and how long does it typically take to set up for just one shot uh if i was trying to go as fast as i could maybe about 10 minutes Um, okay so it's not it's not too bad, um, but once you get the camera set up, then you have to you know pull out the light meter and do all that. And if things are changing fast, it's definitely not very friendly for that process. So I gravitate right. towards scenes that are you can kind of take your time with, kind of like we we're talking about earlier, the whole Bob Ross, you know, kind of Zen sort of chill sort of scenes. Um, that's the sort of stuff I gravitate towards because you can actually enjoy the process as opposed to just rushing like crazy. And, and I do that too. I mean, if there's something going on fast my whole technique is I don't look at what's going on. I just ignore it. I'm just setting up the camera, kind of pretending like, you know, whatever crazy lights happening, I just ignore it because, you know, nothing I can do about it until the camera's set up anyways. But, uh, you know, right. you kind of, you know, live and learn and, you know, learn to work with it. And so the, you, you, uh, started with the four by five as your first large mm-hmm. format, or is that technically medium format? I, that's I, I that's starting to the large format setup. So yeah, that's yeah. large format. Um, how long did it take you to get to the 8x10s? Uh, so I, I bought the 4x5 in kind of late 2008. And by the spring of 2009, I bought an 8x10. I just, I love the process. And I, you kind of look at like, what are the tools that people of, you know, the masters over the years have used. And a lot of people are just, you know, using an eight by 10, you keep seeing that. And uh, in reality, eight by 10 is kind of overkill, but at the same time, if you shoot transparency film and you get that eight by 10 inch transparency back, put it on a light box, look at it with a loop. It's really addictive. Um, Yeah. When you nail that shot and you kind of know that you have like, you know, I could scan that at like over 700 megapixels. So it's, you have 
tons of detail. Um, it's just a, a really unique experience. Um, plus, it makes you work a little bit harder for that shot because it's slower to work with. It's more fiddly as a camera. Um, that I think you end up appreciating the results a little bit more just because it makes you take that extra step. Um, so I, I've since sold off the 4x5. I sold it off quite a while ago. And uh, basically, the only thing I use now is just the 8x10. And I just try to, even though that format may not be ideal for some of the things I use it for, you know, it's just like that that one tool you have in your toolbox that just kind of like, you can make it do anything really. Um, may not yeah. be the best, but it'll it'll get the job done. So basically every photo in my portfolio since probably 2010 or so is nothing but eight by 10 film. When did you start with the YouTube uh, videos? Uh, so the first one I posted was back in 2009. 2009. Okay. Yeah. So that it goes back, uh, goes back quite a ways. And if, and they're still up there. I mean, if you dig way back in there, you'll find them. They are, they're rough in, in, in an <laughs> amusing kind of good way. Yeah. I still have hair back then, and I didn't have a good beard back then. You know, <laughs> glasses were not nearly as stylish, so they're still there. I in the early videos, I mean, on some of the trips, I didn't bring a battery charger with me. I didn't know how to charge batteries in the field, so as soon as yeah. that battery died, that was it. So you know, things things have changed a lot since then. <laughs> and so, what made you decide to try uh, to to start doing it via YouTube? So at back then, um, and, and as far as I can tell now, I, I think I was, I'm the first person to do the landscape videos on YouTube, as far as I can tell, because I, I can't find anyone that's been doing it longer than I have. Um, yeah. It all started because uh, way back then, uh, written blogs were a really big thing. And I was trying to keep up with a written blog, but ultimately, it, I just have writer's block. It was tough to do. And so I had like this little Canon point and shoot camera with me. So I'm like, when I just record some video clips, you know, just to kind of document the experience. And, and at a certain point, I'm like, I'll just kind of edit these together and have that as something that goes alongside with the written blog. And then at a certain point, I just got tired of doing the written blog and put a little more effort in the video. And um, then we had the, you know, uh, digital SLR cameras that could do video and sort of that equipment started getting better and better and better mics and all kinds of other stuff that came out sort of along the way. So uh, it was really just because I was tired of writing. That's that's, that's <laughs> really what it came down to, yeah. And the rest of the world followed. You know, I, I think it's just, you know, riding that wave of just as, as soon as that technology just becomes better in terms of, you know, it's, it's amazing that, you know, back when I started doing that, you know, you didn't have these digital SLRs. So you like, you don't get that shallow depth of field and video and all these things that we kind of take for granted now. Yeah, um, but yeah. I, did, I think I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and then all of a sudden, this you know technology comes about, and and here we are. It's you know 2020 now, and you know been doing it since 2009. So it's kind of crazy how time flies. Now you are in a very unique category in that you are not doing any kind of advertising with your YouTube yeah. videos. You are uh, completely ad free and. Mm -hmm uh, fan supported. Um, how do you think that has impacted your photography career, uh, compared to other photographers? Now I'm not comparing your photography, but as I'm, I'm talking about like kind of like the, the reach and the, um, notoriety compared to say something like Peter McKinnon, who is, I, I, I mean, as off the top of my head is like, bigger in subscriber numbers. Oh yeah. Like um, now I'm not saying that you, you, going commercial is uh, you know, I, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, I'm babbling now. I'm trying to, I should have thought about this question a little bit more, but uh, like how, how does that impact the, the kind of work you do? Uh, uh, for example, uh, is this your first full-time gig uh, doing landscape photography? So when it comes to like the ad stuff, um, uh, I mean, it, it, well, at this point in time, um, I guess technically with this whole pandemic situation, I am doing this full time now. Um, I was, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I was working a part time job. Um, it actually goes back to um, when I graduated from college, um, I started working at a local camera store here in San Diego. And so that was in 2004, I started working there. And then about I don't know, like three or four years ago, something like that, I 
I kind of decided that I wanted to shift a little bit more towards doing the photography stuff full time. And so my strategy for that was instead of working five days a week, I'm just going to work four days a week. And then I have an extra day to work on stuff. And then year by year, I kind of take a day off. And at the start of this year, it was down to just one day a week. And then, you know, worldwide pandemic. And then, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I guess I'm kind of doing this full time now. Um, yeah. So that's so in that sense, technically, I'm doing this full time now. But at the same time, uh, before this whole thing happened, I was working just one day a week. And then my photography kind of accounts for all the rest of the income to pay all the bills. Um, but when it comes to the ad free stuff on YouTube, that was a decision I made, I don't know, maybe it was like four years ago, um, somewhere in that range, maybe a little longer. But I, I honestly did not like the direction that the ad supported content pushes you. Um, what yeah. I find is that a lot of channels, they all kind of tend towards, they end up being very similar um, after a while because you're rewarded by the number of views you get in terms of the ad revenue. So you're kind of tend to follow the crowd and to uh, follow the techniques that are sort of the proven techniques, the, the tips and trips, tricks videos, the, um, the sort of clickbait sort of titles and stuff. And yes, uh, and some people do very well with that. I'm not, and, and nothing, nothing bad about that, but I didn't, I didn't like the feel of it for my own stuff because it made it felt not very genuine for what I actually wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so I made the decision to cut off the ads so I wouldn't be pushed in that direction. And instead, I can sort of just focus on doing what I wanted to do and what I felt was perhaps better content. And by shutting off the ads, I know that the YouTube algorithms do not like that. And so yeah. they don't promote the videos as much as if I had ads. Um, and also, I intentionally avoid uh, clickbait titles. Um, yes, many of the Thank titles you, my, my videos, they're very boring titles because I'm not trying to get that attention. Um, yeah. And, and I think the main thing is that I'm trying to more so speak to the people that actually watch the videos as opposed to kind of speaking beyond them and trying to attract like a bigger crowd. Um, and so I found that it's been far more fulfilling that way. Um, because I don't have the pressures of stuff. And the other thing too, is once the channel starts to grow, you have all these other companies that reach out to you about, um, you know, ads and all kinds of stuff, you know, you know, all kinds of sponsors out there, obviously Squarespace being a huge one and all this sort of stuff. And I think a lot of those companies see, you know, I just don't do ads and they don't even reach out to me for that. Um, and I'm cool with that because I honestly find that stuff really hard to do. Um, like sort of like ad sort of stuff. So. Um, I, I, it allows me to fly under the radar a bit, but I kind of yeah. secretly like that. I think it would be weird if I had a huge viewership and I'd be afraid that it would change the way I do things in a way that's not for the best. And I think that's partly what is so refreshing about your content is that you don't have that, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to throw shade, but it's, it's hard to, with, uh, this day and age on YouTube, like you have the p uh, titles that are like, I shouldn't have done this. Yeah. And, and it's, Certain it's this apps, you know, stuff like that. And this completely rehearsed, uh, candid moment, quote unquote, yeah. where it's something crazy happening and it's everybody's mouth is agape. Uh, it's yeah. There's always like a certain like expression for the thumbnails, like big on faces and stuff. And, and, and that's the stuff where I just, I intentionally avoid that. But there's another important part of it too. Um, like even with, like with YouTube, when you upload a video, you can, you know, make your own thumbnail. And, um, sometimes people will post, you know, the photo that they shot kind of near the end of the video or whatever, but that's part of the thumbnail. And then they kind of overlay their their themselves on and that's great because it does attract you know people will go to youtube saying oh there's this video it shows how to shoot that particular photo that's cool but yeah for me my whole thing is about story and if i show the photo i shot in the thumbnail i kind of give away the ending of the story so i, I yeah think I, kind of, I will intentionally choose thumbnails that don't ruin don't spoil the story because i think it's really cool when you know the video it's just kind of walking through areas, finding stuff, but you don't really know till the very end that, Hey, this is the day I walked away with that really cool shot. I'm super ha happy with, cause it just kind of allows the audience to, 
uh, kind of experience it like I did. And I think that's kind of the, the main thing of why I do the videos the way I do. It's just, you know, so they, they can see it as I see it. And that's, I think, what is so inviting about your videos is that they are, the, those thumbnails are part, like they, they, they invite you onto the path, um, so to speak. So it is not clickbaity, but it is super inviting. And it's, uh, you, you always have that great leading lines where you are usually in, in the thumbnail. Yeah, and just to see to me following like, through canyon or something like that. You just walking away, you know, from the camera, or whatever. Just choose like a a scene from there, which gives a little bit of feeling for what's going to happen. But at the same time, it doesn't it doesn't spoil the surprise. Yeah, Bill yeah. Bixby would be proud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it's it's kind of like follow me on this adventure uh, kind of uh, feel, and and every Saturday is when. You know, when, when I see that thumbnail, it's like, all right, right on time That's to make cool. some time. That's cool. So, uh, yeah, I, so I, I think it, it's, I think it's great. It's a great creative choice and it is, it's should be a lesson to people that want to create something that's authentic and still be, uh, immersive basically. Uh, I, I I don't think you need to sacrifice quality uh, and, and you know just to 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 appease some mythical algorithm. And as I say that, my YouTube channel is probably going to suffer a few hits. But yeah, yeah, it's, so, somehow it's always listening. You know, the algorithm is always just in the background, listening, figuring out what's going on. They are always listening. Oh yeah, yeah. Um. By the way, Amazon, I need more uh, cat food. So if you could get on that. <laughs> oh, it'll probably show up tomorrow, you know, knowing the way things are. Oh, my God. my de- that, That's amazing because my delivery times have gone to crap now. Um, on essential stuff, it takes about like uh, like five days. But for, for things that I don't need, I could have it tomorrow. <laughs> things have gotten a little better here in San Diego. I mean, it used to be they would say like, yeah, you want that pencil? Yeah, you got to wait like six months, you know. But, uh, yeah. but now it's, I've, I've actually been surprised when, th- so when something shows up in like a day or two, I'm like, oh, it's kind of back to normal. It's not bad, you know? So, yeah. I haven't checked, uh, all too much. Uh, I, I um, I should try, but, uh, I know last week I tried to get some essential items and they, they just got to, got to, got to wait a couple weeks. Yeah. But, uh, but Hey, I, I can, I can live without some of the soda I drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that's, that's a whole other story, but uh, so with YouTube as kind of as, as the, the, your career now um, and, and the landscape photography, uh, how does, where do you see yourself going from here? Um, what, what is, the the next steps what are the some of the next adventures that you have planned right i mean because you're very frequenting um death valley uh zion mm-hmm. um are there other locations that you want to explore um yeah i mean there's there is um though i will say that most of what i do i love the process of returning to areas because if you think of um, you know place like Zion, it's not a very big park, but at the same time, there are so many places there I have not been within that small park, all kinds of areas tucked away. So um, even a place like Zion, I could probably spend the rest of my life and not not see the whole place. Yeah, um, Death Valley is kind of the same way, but uh, I, I visit those areas. I visit Zion twice a year. I visit Death Valley once a year. Uh, just you know when the I visit Zion during the winter and during the fall and Death Valley just during the, during the winter. But, um, I definitely have my annual trips there. Um, I was hoping to make it back to the Redwoods this year, but, um, uh, earlier today I saw that my, uh, campground reservations were canceled. I knew that they would be because, uh, it's going to be a while till, till all that opens up again. Yeah. But, but even like earlier today, I'm, I'm starting to get packed for a, uh, 
upcoming backpacking trip to Southern Utah, because that area is all open right now and all accessible. Um, and, uh, I mean, that area over there, I mean, this, this maze of canyons and stuff, and it's another area where you can spend the rest of your life there. Um, so I, I mean, honestly, these areas that I frequently visit, um, they'll, they'll keep me busy for a long time. So I don't really have too much. I don't really have a, I have no real desire to travel abroad. Uh, it'd, mm -hmm. be, it'd be a pain with large format. I love being able to travel in my truck and just have everything I need right there and not have to depend on anything. Um, so in reality, it's just kind of further exploring the areas that I already love and, uh, you know, branching out a little bit, visiting some new areas. But when you consider that some of these areas have been keeping me busy for, you know, over 10 years now, and I'm still not getting tired of them. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to keep kind of exploring the same areas. And, um, as far as like the whole, you know, YouTube and that sort of stuff, um, I've been, I've been pretty consistent through the years in terms of, you know, going the trips and visiting the areas and, um, I don't really plan on doing all that much different in that regard. Uh, just sort of going out there on the week long trips or so and doing it. I don't really have any like big plans other than things to be work. Things seem to be working out pretty well so far and just kind of keeping at it and kind of, uh, seeing where things lead. Yeah. Right on. And of course I, I mean, I never get tired of watching them. So, uh, okay. I am just amazed at like, you're able to get like these beautiful wide vistas. And then the next moment you will find this one tiny thing on the ground. Oh yeah. That's yeah. the best part. Yeah. It's, that it's, is, it's awesome to, when there's something that I've literally walked past like three or four times, didn't even notice it. And then all of a sudden you look down and you realize that's pretty awesome. You know, why, why didn't I see that before? Why didn't this like stand out to me? Uh, there, there's literally stuff all around. And, and like you said, I mean, there are like these wide vistas and stuff, but honestly that stuff can be quite difficult to shoot sometimes, both from a lighting standpoint. Um, also in terms of having all the elements aligned properly. But when I was on my, um, winter trip to death or uh, to, uh, to Zion, there's an area I found where there's like this little pool of frozen water with a leaf embedded in it with all these cool patterns. And I walked yes. past it a few times and eventually I'm like, Oh, there it is right there, literally at my feet and ended up being one of my favorite shots from the trip. So there's a lot of times people will just walk right past those scenes and not even notice it. I mean, myself included. Uh, but if you kind of train your eye, you can find some really cool scenes on the ground and they're, they make really, really fun prints because you see all these little details and it's something about enlarging that bigger than reality, which is, which makes it kind of fun. You could make it into the side of a billboard and it'll be <laughs> oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Easy. I mean, you scan it like 700 megapixels. It's actually kind of funny because, um, a friend of mine that does the drum scans, which are the really high end, high quality scans of the film, um, he'll scan the film for me. I'll get it back. And then I like, there's this one photo I had that had, um, these leaves that are floating on the water and it was in this kind of warm reflected light, but the water had oil in it. So I had like this really blue kind of iridescent looking areas. Um, he scanned it at like 300 megapixels and I, I was kind of going through the image and getting rid of little dust spots and stuff like that. And then I started realizing that there's like 20 dead bugs in this photo that I did not even know were there, but you get that high risk <laughs> scan back and you're like, I'll leave the bugs there just for, you know, keep, but you know, at the same time, if someone orders a picture of this, it's going to be printed big and they're going to look at all these dead bugs. So I don't know, but it's, it, it's, it's fun to see all the details. <laughs> That's amazing. And with, um, all right. So I got, I got to ask this, um, uh -huh. how much does your like lens set up, uh, throw in the tripod? How much does that, how much is that worth? Like what, what, I, cause so I, I can I never have, imagine yeah, a price. I have, like, I have a, I have a couple different setups I use. So if I'm going on a backpacking trip, um, I will take along my Intrepid 8x10, which is, it's made out of plywood. It's a very lightweight camera. Yeah. Um, those cameras sell for about 600 bucks or so, um, which is pretty darn inexpensive for an 8x10. Uh, mm -hmm. The lens I'm putting on, it's probably about a $600 lens. That's about how much the, yeah. the really light lenses I have. Uh, I'm putting that on a 1 Series Gitzo uh, Mountaineer, a pretty lightweight tripod. Um, I, I use an Arca Swiss Cube head it's a geared head for pretty much everything that head's the most expensive thing of everything it's like a 
$1,600 head, but I, yeah. I could, I could go with something smaller and simpler if I needed to. Um, but I also, the other camera I have, it's, um, it's Ar from Arca Swiss. Arca Swiss is kind of the, the Leica of the large format world in a way. Yeah. A uh, very high end, very precise. Uh, it's designed to kind of last you forever. They're also very expensive. Um, that camera that it's like a $10,000 camera. It, it's, it's a very expensive camera. Um, and on that camera, the lenses I use are bigger lenses. They're brighter. And those, those ones are maybe like a thousand or 2000 each. And th those, all the lenses are used. Um, and then like a, with a three series, um, get so systematic tripod. So yeah, it, it kind of depends. It doesn't have to be very expensive. The intrepid cameras, they'll cost, you know, the same as a digital camera that's from like three generations ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and the lenses aren't bad, but it, it can be expensive. It gets more precise. It gets more accurate. Things are more, um, a little more finesse to them as the cameras get more expensive, but the cameras are just a light proof box. So that's, that's all they are. Um, yeah. And, and the cool thing about large format is basically any lens you use is going to be great. Cause if you think about it, you don't enlarge the image very much, um, from the eight by 10 film to your print size. Uh, compared to like with an APS-C camera, a full frame camera, you have like this really small image it projects on the digital sensor. And then if you want to do like a 20 by 30 inch print, you're enlarging that up huge. So you're going to see every flaw in that lens. Um, but with yeah. large format, you don't, you don't have chromatic aberration. You don't have weird inconsistencies and in sharpness and all that sort of stuff. So pretty much every lens is a good lens, which is one of the very refreshing things to get away from the techie side of digital stuff where we notice those sort of differences. You don't, you don't see that stuff with a large format, which is kind of fun. So I'm kind of leading you there because there are knowing all that there are moments, uh, there, there were videos where you would set up your camera and just leave it there overnight. You would oh, yeah. walk away. That. <laughs> yep. That is probably the thing that dr gives me the most anxiety in your videos. It's like, you, you, you just left it there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I certainly won't do it everywhere, but I'll, I'll do it in areas that are a little more kind of remote wildernessy kind of areas, areas where, um, and also if, if it's an area where it's, it's still, let's say it's in death Valley, but it's, you know, it's not too far from the road or whatever, you know, yeah. I'll, the reason I'll leave a camera overnight is because it's, pretty much impossible to set up a large format camera in the moments before sunrise when it's kind of like that blue hour twilight you just you can't see anything on the ground glass and by the time yeah. it's bright enough the light's already not that great so i learned early on i just set up the camera like the day before find my composition uh, lock everything down cover it up log it in my gps i'd stick with it through sunset till it got dark hike back to my truck yep. and no one's going to find it in the dark and then I come yeah. back the next morning, it's waiting for me. It, that technique worked fantastic. I, first time I did that was in 2010. And it wasn't until 2017 that I destroyed my first camera. It got blown over in the wind and shattered to pieces. Um, yeah, that's what I'm worried about. Like is maybe an animal like knocking it over. Yeah, or... in, in most of the areas I go, I'm not, there's not a lot of animal stuff. It's more, it's more like the elements, like wind and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, that year I did have a camera that was destroyed then i had my backup camera i used for the rest of the trip um and then that one <laughs> i went back to death valley about a month later and then that one also uh saw an un untimely demise uh but i you, you know you learn from that and so I, i've learned um in those situations i i can sink a, a ground screw like this big beefy orange screw i got from like home depot you just like sink it into the ground tie cord to the center um of the tripod and it won't get knocked over yeah. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what I've done, but th there have been times when I'll, I think the last time I did this was, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was 20, 20, 2018. I think, um, I was setting up a photo in death Valley in an area that's notoriously windy and, uh, set up my camera the day before, uh, locked it all down, sank a big ground screw in the ground, tied some cord to it. I just remember kind of like saying, you know, good luck, buddy. And then hike back to my truck for dinner and it was so windy that night. My, my forerunner was shaking in the wind. Um, but it was, it was just fine in the morning. Cause I, cause I secured it down nice, but, uh, yeah, I don't want to destroy any more cameras. It'd be nice to avoid that. <laughs> right on.
uh, yeah, that of of all your videos, I think those are the ones that just make me cringe a bit. Like, just I'm like, oh my god, I, I yeah, hope yeah, are. it happens. <laughs> and actually, the other thing too is, um, the the day after I destroyed that first camera, um, I was kind of like, all right, we'll regroup. This is all good. We'll be all calm and stuff. I was gonna get up early the next morning and go find some subjects with my backup camera. And then, but that night, a rodent uh, chewed through my ignition wires in my Forerunner and disabled my Forerunner. So it's kind of like, oh, 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 you know, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it happens. Right. That's all good. But that's part of the adventure. Yep. Makes makes for a good story. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Um, ben, it's been awesome chatting with you. Um, I, I can't say this enough. It, it's your photography has been such a inspiration to to watch you develop uh and by that i mean watch you start on your journey in the beginning of your videos and, and to the point where it's that end you know end photo scene where you 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 reveal your photo um they are just these beautiful works of art uh from beginning of the video to the end of the video where it, it's just all in like uh, all immersive. Uh, it is just beauty from beginning to end, and you, I can't thank you enough for sharing these videos. I appreciate that. Um, and it's it, I, <laughs> I, I find describing it difficult because it is such a visual medium that you you present. Um, yeah, it's it's a really fun process um, because it's it, there's something about just um, I don't know it, it you know not not it's not really a matter of trying to make something seem like a bigger deal than it is if anything it's kind of like understating some of the stuff but it, it, I will say it is is an enjoyable process for me you know I get back from the trip just to sit down put the videos together and kind of like relive the experience a little bit um, so it's it's something that's enjoyable for me to put together so i'm glad that that comes that comes through on you know from the perspective of watching it as well yeah and like when you present the videos like day one day like it's counting down to the time where you actually have to leave and it's like oh man uh, it's time to go <laughs> it's <laughs> like you, you as the watcher uh feel kind of that Ah, the 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 adventure's kind of over. Yeah. Uh, but knowing that there's going to be another one soon is is always. I mean, it, it's it's your bread and butter. Of course, you're going to do another one. Yeah. And, but, and, uh, and hopefully, and actually, hopefully, pretty soon here is I'm I'm literally getting my truck packed for another adventure. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, but yeah, well, there's, the there's, there's always an adventure. The, the fortunate thing is you you you've nailed social distancing in those videos. So oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's like there's there's if if there's anyone around me it's like oh man I'm I have not gone far enough I need to find somewhere even you know <laughs> boom here's the master here's the instruction manual yeah um Ben again thank you so much for for jumping on uh we we talked about the the Fuji film. Um, actually, I got one more question for you. Yeah. Um, we, we talked about your two favorite uh, Fuji films. Um, with, with film kind of going up and down, you know, some, some are being discontinued. Some mm -hmm. are making a comeback. If you had your choice of shooting a particular film, what would it be? The ones that aren't available to us anymore? Um. That's a good question. Um, that, that's that's good. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, there there's some classic films I never really had any experience with. Um, you know, Kodachrome and all those ones that um, that aren't around anymore because they're a whole different process. So it kind of would have been nice to to shoot those. But I, I will say I'm I'm pretty darn satisfied with the current options as far as Provia and Velvia 50. Um, though the, the future of Velvia 50 is a little sketchy just because you can't even buy it in the U S you have to buy it from Japan directly and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, 
I'm, I'm hoping that those will stay around. And sometimes people have said, you know, if, if those go away, what are you going to do? And, and, and I honestly don't really know. I mean, um, at some point I'll end up with a digital setup just because it won't be realistic to, to lug around an eight by 10 camera forever. Um, yeah, but, uh, but there really isn't one that kind of went away that I'm just like, ah, oh, man, I, I wish that that was still around. Cause the, the main ones I still use are thankfully around and hopefully they'll be around for a while. Right on. And Hey, Fujifilm makes a great 100 megapixel camera. So they, got they, do. they do, they do. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Ben, why do you tell the world where they can find you on the web? Yeah, so if uh, my website is benhorn.com, that's B-E-N-H-O-R-N-E.com. Uh, that'll link to YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, all that. But on Instagram, I'm benhornphoto, and just search for me on YouTube. Just look for benhorn, you'll find me on there. It'll be all the pictures of not my face uh, for the. <laughs> yeah. Just look for the look. Yep. If you see clickbait, it's the wrong benhorn. So yeah, you know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Right on, Ben. It was awesome having you on the show. Thank you for coming on, and uh, I can't wait for the next adventure. Awesome. Thanks for having me. And one more time, thank you so much to Ben Horn for taking the time to sit down and chat with us. I I, I had a great time chatting with him, and I probably could have gone longer just uh, shooting the breeze about the places he's visited, and I'd like to know more about the gear that he uses. Uh, large format photography is a bit of a mystery to me. But as you could tell from the, the this interview, but it is just such a fascinating way of doing photography, and it, it is such a big contrast to our fast-paced uh, gear that can, you know, we we demand our gear to move faster and faster every time, and to to go back to yesteryear and have a, a system that is best used by going very slow is is quite amazing so thank you ben for sharing all that and we hope to talk to you again very soon and one more time big shout out to fuji love magazine for making this podcast possible for the latest and greatest in all things fujifilm x series and gfx and potentially large format head on over to fujilove.com with that, thank you so much for listening. Again, we want you to stay safe, uh, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.